All right, Luke 23. Luke 23, verses 32 through 43 is going to be our text this morning. And uh, please follow along as, as I read this. Luke 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This morning I'm titling my sermon, Preoccupied with Jesus. Let's pray and ask God for his help this morning. Father, we come into this passage, into this word today, and we recognize that this is your word to us. It's living and powerful. I pray, God, that you would give us hearts to receive this, ears to hear it. Do a work in us. Help me as I preach it, that I would preach your truth and not mine. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Imagine with me a man walks out to his car and sees a parking ticket on his windshield $45 for parking in front of a fire fire hydrant. But he's not bothered by it. Hmm. Why is that? Well, it's because he was parked in front of a fire hydrant because he was running into a meeting with his boss and just discovered that he was going to receive a promotion and be making six digits. You see, fear, or what you fear, is relative. What bothers you in this world is relative. Uh, Meaning, something that is generally bad is not all that big of a deal to you when you're preoccupied with something better, like a six-figure salary. At that point, what is your $45 parking ticket? 
I want to talk to you this morning on this topic of being preoccupied, not with six figures, but with Jesus. Preoccupied, dictionary definition. To be absorbed or engrossed to the exclusion of other things. To the exclusion of other things. That phrase right there is why I'm using the word preoccupied in my sermon. To be engrossed in one thing. To the exclusion of other things. Or to turn it around, to be occupied is to just simply be 100% engrossed or absorbed at whatever is right in front of you. So some people then are 100% occupied by this world. They're engrossed by the things of this world, by happenstance and circumstances. This is why then they fly off at the parking attendant, right? Who just gave them a ticket that they deserve. This is why they, they, they lose it. This is why they lie and steal and cheat to get by in this world. This is why they can't handle it when they feel disrespected by somebody. This is why they live with fear of death and dying. Because they are 100% occupied by this world. What then does it mean to be preoccupied with Jesus? It means to be engrossed in Jesus with the reality of who he is to the exclusion of other things. The question I'm asking you this morning is this, is how do you deal with the world that we live in? How do you deal with it? Does suffering in this world occupy and control you? This, this passage that I read this morning that's in front of us is a passage of immense suffering. In verses 32 and 33, we see two new characters. They are called criminals in the passage or thieves. This sets the stage for us because we see now that Jesus is, is, is crucified as a criminal between two criminals. What shame he bore. While he's being crucified, in verse 34, they strip him of his clothes. They divide his garments, and then they begin gambling for who gets to keep his garments. Ultimate shame. Ultimate disrespect. And in this suffering, we see the attitude of the world. There are three groups of people here. First, we see the people themselves, the bystanders. They stood there, verse 35, watching. Also in 35, we see the second group of people, and that is the rulers of Israel, the elders of Israel, the leaders. What are they doing? They're they're mocking Jesus. They're mocking his claim to be Messiah or Christ. And they say, if he's the Christ, then let him save himself. And there's a third group of people, the the Roman soldiers. 
Now, it was uh, uh, completely against their ethical code as Roman soldiers to mock the crucified. But we've seen plenty of codes broken in Jesus' crucifixion already, haven't we? And as the Roman soldiers see the rulers of Israel mocking Jesus, they just join right in and they, they, they don't mock him for being Christ, they mock him for being king. And they say, if he's the king, then let him save himself. I just read an article about how uh, Jim Carrey is going to portray Joe Biden on Saturday Night Live. It's going to be good. Um, I don't know what you think of politics. Should we talk about politics now? No. But I've been looking forward to the debates because they're going to be hilarious. All right? They're going to be funny. Um, and Saturday, Saturday Night Live is going to create some amazing spoofs. All right? Uh, which they always do. SNL does spoofs. And in some ways, what we see happening here is a spoof is created. It's almost like a little SNL scene. He claims to be Christ. He claims to be king. Let's create a spoof and make it look as if he is the king. That's what they're doing here. They're spoofing Jesus. They're, they're creating a parody around this idea of kingship. One theologian said, that the king and the kingdom that Jesus announces here is completely upside down. Jesus, the theologian goes on to say, has celebrated with the wrong people, offend, uh, offered peace to the wrong people, he has warned the wrong people, and now he is, is hailed as king in the wrong way. As a mockery. The mockery continues, and they, they, here, here, here comes the royal cupbearer, verse 36. A soldier says, let's give him his, his royal chalice. And in it is sour wine. Sour wine, it was uh, a wine that was, was so bitter that the, the, the taste of it was known to quench your thirst. And it was very cheap. So for that reason, this wine was sort of the drink of the poor man, not the king. This is a mockery. Here, let's give this king his, his glass, his wine. They, they put an inscription above his head, nail it to the cross, and it reads, this is the king of the Jews. The mockery continues. The parody continues. But oh, the irony in all of this. For the first time in this moment, Jesus is actually recognized as king. Oh, the irony. And even though it is all mockery, all di disrespect, all shame, it's as if Jesus is preoccupied with his own mission. He's not arguing back. He's not taking offense. None of this took Jesus by surprise. Let me read you, going back some thousand years, 
Let me read you some scriptures that Jesus was well familiar with and see if any of this sounds familiar to you. Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They sneer and shake their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him since he delights in him. Or how about verse 18 of Psalm 22? They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. How about Isaiah 53, verse 23? His life will be poured unto death. He will be, quote, numbered with the transgressors. Does that sound familiar? For he bore the sins of many, and check this out, he made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus quietly displays his true kingship among the mockery through two powerful statements. Number one is a uh, prayer, and number two is a promise. First, we see the prayer in verse 34. He makes, trans, uh, makes intercession for his transgressors. What does 34 say? He says, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Didn't he say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? How, how amazing is it? I wonder if the disciples ever realized that in these final moments of his life, he would give them a literal picture, an example of what that looks like lived out. Pray for your enemies. Love them. Pray for those who persecute you. As Jesus dies, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This shows us what? It shows us that at his core, Jesus has a heart of forgiveness. And going back to this theme of our own personal guilt, that is, a, that is good news for you. He's got a heart of forgiveness. And that leads us to the second powerful statement, and that is this promise that he makes. The promise comes in the last verse that I read. Jesus looks at one of the criminals and he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Verse 43. What led to that statement? How can Jesus look at one of these criminals and say to him, Today you are going to be with me in paradise. Paradise. Well, that leads me to my second point of this sermon. Jesus was preoccupied with his mission. The criminal became preoccupied with Jesus. The criminal became preoccupied with Jesus. But wait. If you've read the other Gospels, you know that in Matthew, chapter 27, verse 44, and also in Mark, chapter 15, verse 32, both of those Gospels read this. Both criminals heaped insults on Jesus. Not one, but it says both criminals heaped insults on Jesus. That's how the narrative begins. The criminals, this man was angry. He was a, he's a violent man. He's a lifelong thief. Probably an insurrectionist. Likely a murderer. 
And it doesn't say that he insulted Jesus. It says that he had been heaping insults on Jesus. That sounds like a lot of insults to me. When Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he may have even been thinking of this uh, very thief that's hanging on the cross, both of them, and uh, who have been heaping insults on him, as have the, the people and the soldiers and the, the religious leaders of Israel, and he prays for all of them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then as the story goes on, it's as if his prayer request is immediately answered in one of the thieves. Because something happens on the cross to one of the thieves. It's, it's so surprising. It's so subversive. It's so ironic that it's, it's hard to even put into words. But while this criminal is hanging nailed on the cross, having just heaped insults on Jesus, he changes. He changes all of a sudden. The other one continues in verse 39. He continues to, to heap insults on Jesus. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, you, uh, are, you are, uh, you are, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, of course, that is not a humble declaration of faith and a humble request. It's a, it's a mocking of this claim that Jesus is the Christ, and even in that mocking is a demand that Jesus do something for him. This criminal continues to go on railing at Jesus. And I would love to have seen his face when his, when his partner in crime all of a sudden speaks and reveals that he's changed. Because the other one rebukes him all of a sudden. And again, I want to ask you this question before we get into this. How do you deal with this world? How do you deal with the suffering and the challenges of this world? How do you deal with the fact that you've got to pay for your own wrongs? You've you got to pay that parking ticket. How do you deal with that? You've got to pay for some of the things that you've done. Some of the things that you've done to your body, you've got to pay for that. Some of the things that you've done to your family, you've got to pay for that. Like, How do we deal with the realities of this world? How do we deal with the suffering of this world? Suffering caused by disease or disaster or depression. And for some people, you know, you, you feel like, man... Uh, my problems don't look that bad to others, but for me, they are terrible. You know, others might look at me and say, well, your problems are minimal, but, but for you, it's like, wow. You know, thought I'd be married by now, maybe. Thought I'd have kids. You had visions of what life would be like, and that's not it. You know, you had dreams of Jobs that you might have or houses that you might own or places that you might go and you're getting older and you're starting to realize like a lot of this stuff is just not going to happen. You've got loved ones 
who just seem to have turned their back on you, fallen back into addiction, died. So how, how do we deal with this world? Well, look at the thief. Look at the testimony of the thief. I want, I want, to, I want to listen to his testimony this morning. Because this man is literally breathing his own last breaths, feeling the pain of the crucifixion. And he's got a testimony to share with us this morning. First, he testifies to a newfound fear. A newfound fear. And as I said earlier, fear or what you fear is, is really relative, right? Meaning like you might fear the fact that you, you're not going to be able to finish your uh, Netflix binge-watching TV show before work tomorrow, all right? But then that fear all of a sudden is diminished when you realize that Netflix has cut you off because you didn't pay your bill and you don't have any money in your account, and then that fear is all of a sudden diminished when you go into work tomorrow and you find out that you've been fired. And then that fear is diminished when on Tuesday you go to the doctor and you find out that you have a terminal illness in three months to live. Well, what is Netflix now? You see what we fear, you see what I'm saying? What we fear is relative. Based on something that comes along for good or for bad that is greater Jesus himself said, do not fear him who can kill the body. Listen, one of, one of these criminals right now, um, one of these criminals right now is just simply fearing the loss of his life. And what does he demand of Jesus in this mocking way? He says, save me. Get me off of this cross. The other criminal has just changed. And all of a sudden, he doesn't fear what he once feared. Think about it. He, he probably feared the uh, arresting soldier at one point. He feared the man with the whip. He feared the man coming up with the spikes in his hand. He feared the cross. He feared the shame of the people as he hangs there naked and dying and being mocked. And all of a sudden, he doesn't fear any of that anymore. He's looking at the soldiers. He's looking at the people. He's looking at the reality that in the next couple hours, he will be dead. And he has a newfound fear. His fears have been replaced by something greater. Jesus says, do not fear him who can kill the body. But then he goes on and he says, but fear him who can throw body and soul into hell. Listen, these criminals are not uh, armchair theologians sitting in an ivory tower somewhere having a debate on social media about who to fear in life. These are two guys in the same situation, suffering, hanging on a cross, and one of them fears what he's going to lose in this world, and the other one who once feared that has had that fear now replaced with the fear of him who can throw body and soul into hell. And this is what he says to his partner. He says, 
Do you not fear God? Verse 40. He rebukes him. Do you not fear God? Fear of God is the beginning of conversion. I think you know that you're saved when all of a sudden everything else is diminished and you fear God. He goes on, newfound fear that turns into newfound repentance. Someone once said, be thankful for bad luck. Without it, you would have to blame yourself. (laughs) You know, we live in a world where we don't want to take responsibility. Nobody takes responsibility. We're going to blame it on bad luck. We're going to blame it on our spouse or our kids. We're going to blame it on our family that we grew up in. We're going to blame it on the neighborhood we grew up in. We're going to blame it on whatever we can blame it on, but we are not going to take responsibility for our own junk. But look what happens in this man who has just been changed hanging on a cross. In verse 40, look at verse 40 with me. He says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Verse 41, we indeed justly. Everybody say justly. This is justice for us. He's saying we're, we're getting justice right now. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. The other thief doesn't want justice. The other thief doesn't want to get what he deserves. He's still in denial. He's still going to blame everybody else. He just wants to get off this cross. But this other thief has changed, and all of a sudden, he's taking responsibility for his actions. He's saying, we're getting what we deserve. Listen, church, you cannot turn from sin that you don't first own. You've got to own your sin in order to turn from your sin. You've got to say, it's my fault. You see, the unrepentant says, get me down off of this cross. The repentant says, I'm hanging here because I deserve it. The unrepentant mocks and says, oh, you're the Christ, what are you doing for me? And the repentant says, do you not fear God? The unrepentant says, well, it's everybody else's fault, but not mine. And the repentant says, I'm getting what I deserve. Look, I'm not saying that uh, culture difficulties, challenges, family background. I'm not saying that these things cannot be a powerful influence or a motivator in why we do some of the things we do and why we think some of the ways we think. But nothing outside of you causes you to sin. You see what I'm saying? Like You're held responsible not for your, up, for your upbringing, Uh, Not for your circumstances or influences around you, but you're responsible for your sin. For your choice to be led by all of that than led by Jesus Christ. The thief hanging on the cross 
has newfound fear, which turns into newfound repentance. And he takes responsibility for who he is and what put him on the cross. Thirdly, he has newfound belief. All of a sudden, he believes. Look at it. Verse 41, he says, this man has done nothing wrong. That word wrong means improper or unrighteous or out of place. Think about this with me. This thief has never read one page of a theology book. He doesn't know anything about the virgin birth or the doctrine of impeccability or anything about imputation of Christ. He doesn't know anything about the sinlessness of Jesus Christ from a doctrinal and theological perspective. But he's come face to face with Jesus. And his experience with Jesus is enough to convince him that he has done nothing unrighteous. He has done nothing improper. This man is hanging here as an innocent man. And he, there's even a sense here, I don't want to take this too far, but there's a sense here in which he even he senses something about substitution. He says, he's hanging here for what we've done. We're here for what we've done. He's, 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 he's innocent. He's innocent. All of a sudden, this man believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing. And you say, well, what did he hear? Well, Jesus just said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He knows that this man not only is a good man, but he is a forgiving man. He's got a heart of forgiveness. He's also heard Jesus say, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, this man is, is a Jew. He knows the Old Testament. He knows these scriptures that Jesus is pulling from. He knows what Jesus is claiming to be. And in this moment, he puts his faith into Jesus. And some people are going to want to separate faith from trust. And I'm going to say faith and trust are the same thing. You cannot have faith in Jesus but not trust him. This man has faith in Jesus and it is synonymous in his trust. Because his very next words are, Jesus, remember me. He's falling into death, believing that Jesus is going to be there to remember him when his kingdom comes. He is trusting wholeheartedly in Jesus Christ. It is a childlike trust indeed, but it is trust nonetheless. Now listen, what saves you? What saves you? Is it your good deeds? Is it the fact that you've really lived up to your confession of faith? Is it the fact that you've come to church every Sunday? Is it the fact that you wear a mask out in society? What is it that earns favor between you uh, and, and, and God? How can you be saved? Is it your baptism? Is it the number of Sunday school classes you've sat in? Church, listen, the thief didn't have time to come off the cross to receive one catechism class, one Sunday school class. He had no time to come off the cross to be baptized. He had no time to even live one day to prove to God that his faith was genuine. How much faith does it take to save? Jesus said, just a mustard seed can move a mountain. What's he saying? He's saying this, look, you are saved by grace. 
not by works of righteousness, which you have done, but it is according to his mercy. By grace through faith. How much faith? How much faith? Just a mustard seed of faith. Listen, it's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's not the amount of faith that you have that saves you. But it's precisely who you have faith in that saves you. And this thief hanging on the cross placed just a mustard seed of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God accounted it to him as righteousness. Fourthly, this culminates for him, and I'm done, in a new, newfound desire. A newfound desire. Let me remind you, one thief on the cross has a desire to remain in this earth. His demand of Jesus is, get me off of here so I can live. You know, I'll, I'll deal with these nail scars. I'll deal with the shame and the ridicule of the people. I just don't want to die. His hope is in this world. And I can only imagine that the other thief, just moments before, had the same hope in this world. But all of a sudden, something has changed, and he's got a new song, and it goes something like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And all of a sudden, he has a desire for a city he's never seen. My wife and I think of us ourselves as world travelers. And it happens around 9.30 p.m. as we get on Google and look at pictures of other places. <laughs> um, our favorite city is uh, Mykonos, Greece. We don't even know if that's the right way to say it. We used to say Mykonos, but somebody corrected us and said it's Mykonos. And it's our favorite place in this world. Um, we love their cuisine, their fish, the views, the, the smell of the salty, fresh air. We've never been there. <laughs> All right. Someone once said, I, I literally read this quote this last week, um, I'm in love with a city I've never been to. All of a sudden, this thief falls in love with a city he's never been to. All of a sudden, he has a desire to go beyond right here, to see something else, to see something more glorious than what is. And it's not found anywhere in this world. It's not found in some tropical island or on the Mediterranean. You're not going to go anywhere in this world and find what this man desired. His request of Jesus is so different than his, his partner's. In verse 42, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Into the parousia, as the theologians say. This is, this is the, a belief in the end times. This is a belief that one day the Messiah will establish his kingdom on earth. The city of God, the new Jerusalem that they long for. And he's saying, as he trusts in Jesus, he's saying, I have this desire for that city. I'm no longer concerned about the city of man. 
I'm no longer concerned about this, uh, this world that has shaky foundations that will not last, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But on that day when, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? May I be a citizen of your kingdom in that day. He's willing to die at this point. He's willing to follow Jesus through death and into Jesus' kingdom. Have you ever heard the phrase location, location, location? What's that, what does that apply to? Real estate. First time I heard it, my wife and I, when we first got married, we were thinking about buying a house, which happened years later. But as every young married couple, they think they're going to buy a house right away. Don't do it. <laughs> Not a good idea, probably. Um, and somebody told us, it's the first time I ever heard it, I remember somebody saying, location, location, location. I was like, you just said that three times. <laughs> that probably matters. <laughs> and then we finally bought a house and ignored, ignored that advice. <laughs> Um, you know, if you know anything about our area, actually, when I bought in this neighborhood, I learned about redlining. And I'm not going to get into all of this right now. I just don't have time to go into it. So just not in my neighborhood. Find that book. All right. But because of redlining, uh, house, house values, this side of Utah, uh, plummeted because of the way that uh, racist real estate laws shaped neighborhoods and determined house values. So if you go across Utah, east of Utah, your house value triples. And some of you that might live east of Utah say, I know, just look at my rent or my mortgage. <laughs> so I, I live west of Utah. Now, here's my point. If you take my house as is, with its scuffed up front door, um, the screen's all busted out because of my dog, um, I've got old windows, no central AC, and leaking, leaky plumbing. Take my house as is and put it on Park Avenue. What happens to its value? Look, same house, different location. All right, let's forget Baltimore. Let's take my house and put it in Manhattan. All of a sudden, yeah, two million, three million. Same house, different location. Jesus said this location matters. Location matters. Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. But location matters. Store up for yourselves, somebody help me out here, treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. All of a sudden, as this man has new desires, something changes. He no longer places his hope in this world and on this earth. This thief places his hope now in heaven. Look, same hope. His hope is hope. Hope is hope. 
but he's changed the location of his hope. It's no longer found where moths destroy, where corrosion breaks down your hope. I wonder if your hope is located here or in heaven. Now listen, location matters. If heaven is of infinite value and infinite worth, how valuable now is your treasure that you've placed there? It's infinite. His desire changes, and he places his hope in the kingdom that is to come. Jesus says this as we close. He says, I'm going to do you one better. Look at verse 43. He said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. The thief said, remember me on that day when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said, tell you what, today you're going to be in paradise with me. This is amazing. This is amazing. Jesus dies Mocked as a king, in all reality, the true king demonstrated through his prayer of forgiveness and through his promise that there is victory beyond this death. That victory is accomplished in this moment, and then three days later, Jesus rises from the dead and assures that all of us who trust in him have the same kind of hope. Isn't it amazing that a thief hanging on a Roman cross condemned to die will join this day as a victor with Jesus Christ and will be ushered into paradise by God's grace. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah! What a Savior. Can I close with one more question? How does a brazen criminal all of a sudden have this kind of faith? Because according to Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 17, God said, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. Because they've sinned against the Lord, their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. The problem with humanity is not that we just do some bad things, but it's that we are blind. The thief's problem was not the fact that he stole some things or murdered somebody. His problem was the fact that he was spiritually blind and on his way to hell. How can he now all of a sudden have faith in his last moment on the cross? Well, another prophet, Isaiah, came along, and he said, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And when Jesus first appeared in his ministry, in Luke chapter 4, earlier in this book, verse 18, Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. His whole ministry has been setting at liberty those who are oppressed. His whole ministry has been a picture of what's happening in this man's life in his last moments on the cross. On a road, two blind men come up to Jesus and he opens their eyes. A demon-possessed man is blind and Jesus opens his eyes as he casts out the demon. 
In Bethsaida, there's a blind man, and Jesus opens his eyes. At the pool of Siloam, there's a blind man there, and Jesus opens his eyes. Oh, and blind Bartimaeus comes up to Jesus, and Jesus opens his eyes. What is the reason Jesus opened the physical eyes of those during his ministry? It's just simply to show the greater work that he can do in this thief, in this moment, to just have his eyes opened. And he can do it to you. Maybe he has done it to you. Are your eyes open to the reality of who Christ is? Do you know how marvelous he is? Well, church, be preoccupied then with Jesus. Be preoccupied with Jesus. And you can deal with this world. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for the testimony of the thief. I pray, God, that you would encourage the soul in this room who's hardened by sin. Call them to repentance right now. For those who have been faithfully serving you, God, I pray that we would continue to see Jesus as marvelous. It's in his name we pray. Amen.